This is Changeling the Podcast. Changeling the podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Blessings. What are we talking about today, Puka? We are doing our dive into the Changeling Storyteller's Guide. And I have always thought that it should have an apostrophe at the end, but looking at it, it doesn't seem to. It um, does on Drive Through RPG. Well, that makes sense grammatically. Not but... the PDF, just the. I, I, I just keep thinking, oh, this is so they could sell it in Quebec. And then I'm like, no, wait, that's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> Nevertheless. Yeah. So this is uh, published in 1998. Interesting. The coloring seems weird on the cover to me. It feels actually kind of like the second Ed Core book, but not like a lot of other James Luke books. I don't know. It looks looks fine to me, but I actually really like the cover art on this one. I think it's. Yeah, no, I like cool. it too. It just, the, the, the sort of uh, border color of mm. black there. Yeah, this is, uh, they don't list where it was published, where it was printed, so probably not Canada. Uh, mine says but... printed in USA. So. Uh, okay. I was like, I'm looking at a PDF now. I read it on a hardcover. Uh, there are a bunch of authors on here and a bunch of like other assorted people who I can't recall seeing their names before. Mm-hmm. Ian Lemke and Nikki Rea have obviously done a lot for Changeling. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Buck Marchington, I think did some other stuff the name sounds familiar but then some of the others like there's mark hunter stephen kenson nancy schultz yetter like i had i can't recall seeing any of their names but stephen kenson or stephen herman both oh there's two stevens wow yeah and some of them or three of them at least i think are just storytellers who maybe were invited to write the essays in the mm-hmm. final chapter but yeah so I think I heard of Stephen Kinson from somewhere else. He developed mut- mutants and masterminds. Oh, <laughs> when you say that, I feel like now maybe I have seen his name in association with a White Wolf book. Yeah, he's done a little bit of White Wolf, but he's done mostly other stuff. So that's probably part of it. Mm. And it was largely after this book. Well, we at least know that Nikki wrote the prologue fiction because mm-hmm. it specifically says it. Shall we get into it? Yes. So we open with a story that starts off basically i think like the day after the events in kingdom of willows where we have Mm -hmm. the recently knighted sir safe kind of recounting the story of basically the meta plot up until this point to a group of teens and maybe younger kids who decide they're a gang and living in his old neighborhood and i guess setting the stage for the meta plot to continue Mm -hmm. the way they're describing that neighborhood and stuff Mm-hmm. Is that accurate to places in the late 90s in the U.S.? Or is that like a Hollywood version of it, the way it comes across? It... I'm going to say two things. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who was exactly the age of these kids at exactly the time this was written, who spent, you know, a, an occasional day or two in cities in the U.S., no. Okay. It was not like that. That being Mm -hmm. said, it is set in Atlanta. It is set in 
perhaps a neighborhood that I would not have been allowed to go into. So who's to say? But yes, I suspect that this is more of a Hollywood or yeah. at least. Because I, at that time, was old enough that on my own, I went into some of the bad neighborhoods. of. I mean, Toronto is not the same at all, but mm. like things with the higher crime rate and definitely more poverty and things like that. But it definitely didn't. You weren't likely to have a whole bunch of children living in a former building, like former store sure, or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it felt, it did feel a little bit stilted, not least because you have this issue storyteller recounting these very grand events of import mm-hmm. to like a bunch of kids hoping that he's going to give them what they think is a gun that he's carrying around, but is actually caliber. So it's mm-hmm. like the tone feels a little bit weird to me. That being said, I liked the character detail of Safe thinking about his parents a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. it was such like a minor thread of the story, but it, it grounded it in reality a little bit more for me, and I liked that. And then uh, he crystallizes a changeling at the end, so well done. Yep. But I guess that's supposed to be sort of a representation of the storyteller within the game. And it's like, mm-hmm. take note, storytellers. Here's how you should be, or something. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it was a bit weird fitting with the rest of the the, the yeah. theme and also to remind storytellers of where the meta plot is at something mm-hmm. i mean this book was published in 1998 but i imagine it was kind of in development for anywhere from six months to two years for a variety yeah. of reasons i wonder was this this wasn't under art house but it, not yet no you can feel the banality <laughs> like it this whole book like i'm not saying it's bad or anything but you can feel the banality of finances creeping yeah. in aspects of the book. Yeah, in, in a variety of ways, yeah. One of the things I was thinking about as I went into reading this was how would it compare to other storyteller handbooks or storyteller mm-hmm. guides from the other World of Darkness lines? Mm-hmm. And just right off the bat, the fact that it did take them three years from the game being released to even put one out, I feel like there's something there to explore. Yeah. But anyway. Shall we go into the introduction mm-hmm. and see what this book is all about? Yeah. We have a nice little T.S. Eliot quote to open the first page where it says, The river is within us. The sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. Cool. Yeah, actually, that's getting back to another thing. If you look at the art in this book. Like yeah. The, 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 <laughs> Did they have like a book about the merfolk on the plan and then they got all the art for it and then they got the book canceled so the art ended up here? Well, that's the thing. I suspect that this was in development and then Blood Dim Tides came out and like mm-hmm. there are references to an anime which came out just after this, I think. So it's all, I mean, mm-hmm. as we've spoken about before, the timelines get very muddled and it's hard to tell exactly what art was meant to go with. <laughs> yep. But we have some of the usual suspects. We have the the curiously boxy anatomy of Paul Phillips, the um, sometimes uncomfortably voluptuous figures of John Dollar, and then the should never be rendered in black and white watercolors of Drew Tucker are also scattered through. Mm-hmm. The introduction, though, we've spoken before about the thing that we're I guess, shamelessly appropriating from Mage the podcast of kind of looking for the book to tell us what it intends to do and then using that as a method of evaluation. So I would point to a sentence on page 12 that says, new rules are not rampant within the pages of this guide. Rather, (laughs) hints, suggestions, and clarifications are presented for using the existing rules, which is about as broad of a descriptor as I think you could 
yet, but uh, there's a chapter full of new rules, though. Well, but how new are they really? And we'll get to that. That was kind of my other guiding principle, in addition to how does this compare to other storytellers' mm-hmm. handbooks. Remind you about the yeah the golden rule talks about the galane and what yeah why was in. that here? <laughs> like it's just it seemed very random to be like here are some galane. I guess for a reminder for anyone who had only bought the core book. But then they say the Thalane are only in the Shadow Court as a separate. Right. <laughs> and they also have Hauskaha as Galane, which is like, was that how they were presented before? I don't recall that. But wait, they don't have Inanime or the Mer here, but you said they mentioned it. Right. They do mention One of the other areas where the dwindling finances kind of shine through are the occasionally poor copy editing. Yeah, mine had a lot of... I don't know the PDF, the new version of the PDF, because once again, if you download, I downloaded it back and we did the C20 Kickstarter and I got that. And then I it was like terrible when I opened the PDF and opened it now. It looks all nicer, but... Hmm, interesting. Uh, chapter one. <laughs> yeah. Once upon a time. I think this chapter will probably take up the majority of this episode because it is certainly the richest and probably mm-hmm. my favorite. I want to say. I don't know how to talk about favorite. I like it, but I don't know if I'll ever read it again. The one that I would say is the most, is the reading that I would most recommend to somebody who wants advice about storytelling. I would point them to Mm -hmm. this chapter out of all of them in the book. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with all of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with more of it than your typical white wolf storyteller, (laughs) how to be a storyteller section of a book. So There you go. Yeah, and it's more about sort of the nuts and bolts of a story and getting those in place rather than like plotting out a grand idea for a chronicle. And I think overall that's good because my sense is that a lot of storytellers, when they're starting out, they get their big idea and a lot of the sort of random details or random whimsical things fall into place pretty easily. But then Mm -hmm. putting that into an order and plotting out the beats and determining the theme and the mood all of that softer stuff that's more difficult to pin down, mm-hmm. I think, is where a lot of people struggle. It also does a good job of saying, don't do it like you would a book. Yes. That's a thing that a lot of White Wolf stuff, I'm like, uh, no, you're, you're, I know it's called Storyteller and stuff, but like, this isn't yeah. a book or TV show or something where you write it all ahead of time. It's organic. Uh, help a lot of be org- yeah, be improvisational, respond to the players and what happens and all that kind of thing. So you're yeah. going to need to improvise. Yeah. Well, we start with some advice about organizing a prelude for characters and then the mm-hmm. what they they call the gathering event, or I guess the call to action, whatever the catalyzing incident is that brings the characters together. I was curious what you've tried in terms of chronicles that you've run or games that you've run. I've, for tabletop, obviously, LARPs, very different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have tried something kind of like this, and I've tried ones where the characters have more deep ties. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all the characters are deep tied, but they all like form a web with each other. Mm-hmm. And I find doing that, instead of having a prelude explaining how you all got together or whatever Uh, that works better partly because people are more the characters are more if they were already coherent (laughs) like if they already 
had a reason to be together for quite some time ago. It doesn't mean they've had big adventures or anything, but like that ties can keep them together as the game chronicle progresses, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've tried to pull prelude. I've never gotten a prelude working great, partly because I never get all the players on board, like buy-in for it. <laughs> time to find new players. Yeah, well... <laughs> But I, I mean, I am the same way in terms of I like there to be pre-existing relationships, which I always feel like players should be the ones to kind of figure that out amongst themselves, maybe mm-hmm. with some gentle encouragement. Yeah, well, I, I, I find that's a thing that actually is the same thing in terms of like how strictly you plot things. Mm. It's the same way. It's you have to be able to read the room and pay yeah. attention to what everyone's doing. And that's the thing they do talk about later in this book. Sometimes you'll need to that people are just like, I don't know. And they're looking at you for the answers and you, you got to have some. And sometimes they all have their own ideas that they're going to run with. And as long as like, you're not going to see horrible clashes, people clashes, right? It's okay yeah. to have in-game conflict. I said, the people should not be mad at each other at the end of the game. Conflict without actual fights, ideally. Yeah. And that's a thing actually this book gets into too, that in this chapter and in later chapters where I, I mean, I still have to think of it's a book of its time, but we'll get into that yeah, later. Yeah. Yeah, for this, I thought this chapter was doing a pretty good job for the most part. Source material talks about how to use. It seems like this book is very geared towards storytellers who have no other books besides the core book. I mean, well, they talk about the other books. Yeah, but it's like, you know, just in case you haven't read it, now you know what's in it. So if you need it, you can yeah. go get it. But I mean, you can't assume that anybody running sure. yeah, yeah, a game has any given supplement, especially if it's like from a previous edition. So, yeah. I mean, one of my pet peeves is when players feel like they're entitled to use whatever they want from whichever books, especially when they include homebrew things. I mean, except my mm. own, of course. They're welcome to use that. But, um, yeah. That aside. I'll, I'll, and I'll, that, I'm going to play a silk, whatever silky merits I want. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that kind of connects. They use the term closed chronicle as well to talk about basically when you put bumpers on the story that you're creating and say mm-hmm. what you're going to allow and what you're going to disallow not because you're trying to be a hard ass but just because hey you know having a selkie isn't really going to work well if the entire game takes place underground so like so that's so needed in change it doesn't that's not even a supplement mm-hmm. problem you can grab the two e-core book one e-core book certainly see right. core book and you can't just say all of this willy-nilly in the same chronicle it's it, there's combinations that just don't work yeah so And this kind of gets to, again, in addition to don't treat your role-playing game like you're writing a novel, another thing that's really driven home in this is listening to your players. I mean, there's actually a section Mm -hmm. headed listening to your players, but the overall storyteller-player interactions, I think storytellers have to decide for themselves and make clear to what degree they want to co-create the story with their Mm -hmm. players. Personally, I love it. I love having Mm -hmm. players throw ideas and like working them into the story. Some storytellers want to lay down the tracks of the railroad, put the players on the train and go. Yeah. And that, that needs to be clear. I think we talked about this to some degree in our session zero episode, that needs to be clear right out of the gate because it's going to affect. That's that's session negative two. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you're saying, Hey, would you like to play in my chronicle? okay, well, what? how do you run a game <laughs> before I say yes or no, right? Yeah, and that, I mean, that propagates into so much else in in the game. Mm-hmm. I did also like the little, um, there's an epigraph on page 18 where it's under the heading preparation. The figure steps from the shadows and says, so we meet at last. He pulls back his hood to reveal, uh, 
wait a second. It's um, hang on. I've I've got the name right here somewhere. I just that, that that's describing <laughs> me sometimes. Just too real. Yeah. Do you are you more of a script writer or a note preparer? <laughs> Definitely not a script writer. Uh, yeah. So what I try to do is okay. So oh yeah, where were they talking about that? The the stages of planning. Was that a different chapter? They had one part where they have stages of planning. I'm like, I make uh, NPC character sheets for like very prominent NPCs. And then I uh, think about stuff a lot while I walk around. That's that's my planning. There you go. My notes are things that happen in game that I might forget and I need to look up because, you know, this thing happened in the session. And then like three, four sessions later, it might be relevant. And yeah. I'd like to know what it was. <laughs> Yeah. How about you? Oh, notes. 100% notes. I mean, yeah. I I think I've probably referred to the anecdote before about realizing that I had a problem when it was like after midnight the night before I was running a D&D session and I was like deep in the midst of writing out the different rhymes and metrical forms used in the poetry competitions by the tribe of elves that the players were about to encounter. And I was like, maybe I'm going too far with this. Yeah. I've done the most planning for Chronicles or campaigns, whenever you call it, for game for ones that I've never actually ran or found players for. Yeah, no, uh, exactly, yeah. Over planning is probably means I'm never going to run it. There's, I, there's like a dead pool of unused notes. So. Oh, man, there's this weird science fiction game involving time travel that's like, and you break reality, and I'm just never going to run it. So. Oh, yeah. But that's the thing, something which I maybe they there's a piece of advice along these lines somewhere in here but I, I think storytellers often agonize over exactly how much to prepare i mean first of all you always want to over prepare rather than under prepare but second if you do over prepare it's like just save it save it for next time massage mm-hmm. it into what works for the next session like I, you say you always want to over prepare i don't know about that like i think it really depends on how you're going to do on your feet at the session well uh, all right fair i feel like you need to know what's going to happen in the first few minutes of the game that's the important bit yeah but i think it's better to prepare more than the amount you think you need to than mm-hmm. less than mm. that's that's more what i mean if you decide yeah. i'm going to improv most of this and you only need to prepare a little bit it's still better to prepare a little more than a little yeah. bit than not at all in my opinion, but that's, that's my style. Yeah, but I, th- I think it's more important to be, fl- whatever you do, that you're flexible with it because yes, something yes, will happen at least half the time to throw a spanner in your plans anyway. But mm-hmm. And there's a useful reminder in here that ultimately the PCs are the stars, not your yeah. characters. So like you can put all the effort in the world you want into creating the perfect villain, but mm-hmm. fundamentally you have to give the players more attention than your own characters Mm -hmm. and there's also this nice little section that reads almost like sexual aftercare like on the post-game wrap-up it's like talk to the players ask them if they enjoyed themselves find out what they didn't expect what interested them and what annoyed them it's like all right what did you think of the uh player splats or architect at first i said architect and i'm like wait a sec is this is this the natures from yeah, well, I mean, I am 100% an architect slash thinker who wants yeah. to be a role player. I don't know what I am in this. Yeah, Maybe architect, but I, I'm just wondering like how, how the combat monster refreshes willpower. 
I think I'm more the architect when it comes to computer games, actually. I just want to play yeah. Civilization and build all the wonders. But mm. Yeah, I'm like, I like exploring, I guess, but they're not really in here. Yeah. We also have the hero, the munchkin, the rules lawyer, the wallflower, the significant other, which I don't think is really very fair. No, and some of these are even mentioned you're going to be about multiple of them. I'm like, well, that's the, the significant other, the tag along, and the wallflower are anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever had the situation arise where a player has come to a game with an established character that they want to use in your chronicle? Yes-ish. It's been fine. I, I just say okay. you got to make the character, the starting character rules, and it has to fit into the chronicle with the rest of the characters. Okay. But like, what about a character who someone did an entire, even if it was a small chronicle, and then even if they agreed, okay, I'll wind it back you know uh maybe i've had that i don't know yeah I've, no i think i've had that, that too it's i could see how it could be a problem i've heard stories how it could be a problem but it hasn't mm. been a problem i think i had it once and didn't as long as they wind it well not wind it back right because everybody has a backstory every character oh i just mean in terms of like dots like back to starting yeah. level yeah. go to back to starting level and your backstory just as much as anyone else's new character backstory has to fit into the chronicle yours has to fit into the chronicle right on but if it happened to be like instead of thing you thought of while making your character, it was a thing that happened in a different game. I don't think that's a problem either way. Completely unrelated, the page on which this kind of advice appears about new players, it has probably my favorite piece of Paul Phillips art with like the decomposing mm. fae with the birds and the little kid like. Yeah. It also has the advice of uh, the standard advice is no more than six players. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then later they talk about, oh, you might have as much as eight players. Um, what? <laughs> For Changeling, I could maybe do five. And that's okay. yeah. pushing it. Like, that would be my limit, is five yeah. players plus Well, they, some storytellers prefer even fewer players, and solo and pair games are always yes. an option. Well, I'm not saying I prefer five. Five is like when somebody inevitably drops out due to scheduling conflicts, we'll still have four. Hmm. There's some good advice here on not antagonizing your players and how to deal with player conflict or problem players. It's a good reminder that ultimately yeah. this is a game that is meant to be fun for everybody so yeah there's there's a bit of advice here this is i don't know if this is from the 90s or whatever i was talking about player conflict and, and i mean this book does talk about there's like player stances and like if you absolutely identify with your character pc conflict could be a problem yeah but if everybody's i've played a lot of gamers where they're like suggesting out of game to another player a way for that other player's character to screw over their character because it would be fun. That's the kind of gaming I'm used to from a lot of players. So that's fine. Everybody, as long as everybody's having fun with it, with mm -hmm. intercare, and it's like a soap opera kind of thing, and people don't always get along. As long as the players are totally cool with what's happening. Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. But there's also those situations where it's just there's that one player that everybody cannot stand anymore. <laughs> so. Well, that gets into okay. It talks about problem players here. Yeah, and it had a line that feels very much not now. You should just convince people to work it out among each other. I feel that's true for certain classes of problems. Yes. But yeah. when you're getting into things like bigotry or um, microaggressions or even if the person's entering into good faith, but they're very oblivious about certain things, like, no, you got to step in a bit more for that. To... Well, I will say when I read this, the, the person, <laughs> there's one particular person and then a few similar people who I've gamed with in the course of my life that this makes me think of. And what they all have in common is for whatever reason, 
what I see as a deep need to be the singular hero who's the center of attention, Mm -hmm. who's the center of every plot line, and who, if they're not that, get incredibly agitated and, you know, huffy that they're not the hero. And I think that's, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say more common than someone who's making microaggressions, but at least easier for this advice to apply to. Yeah. But if somebody's always doing that and the other players are annoyed and you're like, go talk to them and I'm not, I'm going to stay out of it unless it gets really bad. And I'm like, well, I think talking to people earlier is better. I do kind of think it is on the storyteller to, to try and move the camera around as much as they can. Yeah. But if someone keeps <laughs> jumping in front of the lens, then it's like, all right, you need to. Yeah. The way this was written felt like, because it went from problem players and then the last resort and you have to kick them out. And I'm like, it felt like you go from not talking to somebody to kicking them out. I don't normally see things where that would be necessary, but talk to them first. And usually you can work it out. I guess it depends on the situation, like how many times you can talk to them and have them not get it before you have to actually do that. But I think you have to talk to them. Yeah, at least have once. not get it before you. <laughs> yes. Unless they do something really egregious. Yes, but it seems here it's like, oh no, let the other players talk. make the other players talk to them and you stay out of it. So we have some information on ongoing chronicles. Out of curiosity, what's the longest chronicle you've ever run? Tabletop. Maybe 30 sessions. All right. Well, that's respectable. I mean, it's been a long time though. That's 29 more than a lot of games. So. That's, that's more than I had. That's before I had kids. So, mm. and I don't think it was White Wolf, not counting LARP. I find the medians like five sessions. Mm. That sounds about right. Usually it's people didn't realize what they were getting into, or I only got four people interested in playing. One of them dropped out after session zero because they never heard a changeling before. They read the book and went, they didn't like it. And that happened once. And that was... Sure. And then it was like three people and then one person had a scheduling conflict and now it's two people. Wow. In an ideal world, (laughs) a chronicle will proceed for at least a healthy amount of time. And they kind of... I wish they went into more about the difference between the episodic and the serial and how to kind of navigate that. I wish they'd actually teach you how to use a story as a unit of certain number of sessions. Mm. get into that they mention it they don't get into it here and that's something yeah. that i've always struggled with world of dark isn't the only type of things to do that but it's like a thing i come across and i've never made that work because there's always multiple plot threads and it's like well yes you have like six plot threads one resolved is that the end of a story like what none of them are always going to resolve at once i don't know <laughs> i think it requires a level of comfort with leaving some things unresolved because you can always keep going it's like they say, a happy ending is just a story that hasn't finished yet. But but not talking about end of the chronicle, end of a story as a unit of time when you're supposed to give out the extra XP in Changeling and things like that. Yeah, I mean... I never know when that is. That's my... I guess you just kind of have to pick one and, and say this is the main determiner. Mm-hmm. There's some advice in here about player input. It's good to remember that players will disrupt your game. They will create wish lists and they will be more engaged if you don't shut them down. And if you pay attention and listen and do the work of allowing your story to bend. I like to say that my preferred style is sandbox with signposts where, you know, I have my specific things that I want to hit, but as long as those are at some point attended to go nuts players. So yeah. All that being said, the players also don't have to be jerks about it. And if they're going to be huffy about not getting their way, maybe they can game elsewhere. Yeah. We have a section on theme, which bothers me a little because they kind of collapse mood into it. And I see those as different things Mm -hmm. where theme is 
what's your chronicle about versus mood is how does it feel, but that's a minor quibble. Mature themes are listed here. Man, this is definitely also side of 1998. Yep. Like, no lines, no veils. Well, also, like, oh, gamers don't usually do that. I'm like, there are so many role-playing games that are about yeah. that now. Plenty aren't. It's fine. You can do whatever. Like, you can do lots of different styles of gaming. But, like, I don't think it now counts as, like, this thing nobody does. <laughs> That's... Yeah. And then we have using the senses. I think we talked about this a lot when we discussed glamour and banality, like mm-hmm. the effectiveness of having a few solid descriptors that you can drop, which will sink in slowly and effectively. And for me, I don't know about you, those are some of my proudest moments. If I like describe something and the whole table is like, whoa, then I feel I feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing I have to remind myself of. It doesn't come naturally, but yeah. Well, and to your point about kind of thinking about things as you walk around, I don't do this personally, but I never think it's a bad idea to kind of just keep a notebook or keep a document that you just drop things into as you think of them that you can just Mm -hmm. pull out for whatever game down the line. Oh, I do do that, actually. I have a, these days, a Google Doc on my phone. Yeah, once in a while, I have an idea. I'm like, ah, I need to run a game about that at some point. Yeah, if if I'm actively running the game or or getting together players for it, I'll get a doc like that going. Just Mm -hmm. The idea box. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a list of little extra touches to make game sessions more entertaining. We have maps and floor plans, puzzles and tricks. Do you ever do these with physical artifacts if you're running a physical game? Physical ones, not often. Pictures, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, pictures are probably the only physical things I give out. I do like constructing puzzles, and I do like recording memorable quotes that players say in the game. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like, I generally don't do physical props. Yeah, I don't either for tabletop, <laughs> for LARPs. Is pretty yeah. Much, uh, and then, yeah, the pictures, I do more online. If I'm running an online game, I'll like yeah, have lots yeah, of yeah. pictures. And then in person, I just, probably because I don't want to print things or show my laptop screen or something. Well, as, as it says on page 29, for those with access to the internet, the World Wide Web is a limitless source of, quote, downloadable pictures that you can yeah. save to your hard drive. I know there's a lot of controversy these days. There's a lot of controversy around AI-generated images and stuff. Mm. But I don't know if too many people would have an issue with you using that for this purpose. Like, Yeah, privately, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Like, it's, it's like you're, you're not going to be paying money for that either. It's... It's using that instead of actually like straight out copyright infringement of sharing images. I will say, as we go on to the next page, when it talks about kind of scene setting in the actual space when you're where you're gaming, I always have music on. That is like an essential piece for me. That's another difference. I never have music on, and I Uh I can't focus on playing the game if there's music on. That's fine. I mean, I always try to choose something quiet and atmospheric. If it was very quiet and no lyrics, maybe that could work. Yeah. But that to me, like I always have playlists for my games. It's always one of the things I wanted to figure out how to make work for me. But mm. yeah, I need to do these other things more like the lights. Food. I mean, we definitely have, I've often had it where we're gaming when we're all having like dinner or something. You always have to be careful though, because like people want to touch your books and they're eating pizza and you're like, no, I'm, I'm very grateful for PDFs for that reason. Yeah. Although actually maybe another thing about it, a lot of times people are eating well, we're waiting for the other people to get there. <laughs> and it's, that too, for sure. Yeah. Or people will bring foods that are better at not getting stuff on things. But yeah. 
So I do have a very particular comment that I want to make about blue booking, which is discussed here. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, blue booking is essentially a tool where you have a piece of paper or some booklet or whatever. Mm -hmm. The term derives from the blue exam booklets from what's his name? Uh, Aaron Alston, who used to coin the term. And it's for players and storytellers to privately exchange messages. It's also called in here paranoia notes. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe my opinion is kind of tinted by that. <laughs> but I personally am not too much of a fan of it. There's two things called blue booking, by the way. It, they actually get it, they conflate two different things in this too, that they both call blue booking. But anyway, continue. Well, there's also like the diary option and that's, that's yeah, fine. Or, or just the downtime notes. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So another brief anecdote, which again, I've probably mentioned before, I played in one Vampire 5th edition game at a convention and it was just a one shot to kind of learn the mechanics. And I, my yep. thoughts on V5 had cooled enough that I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. And there were a couple players who everyone had played vampire before, but these players were committed to the idea that every single vampire game has to bend in the direction of all the players are out to get each other basically. Mm -hmm. And like one of them or two of them, I think were kind of constantly passing notes back and forth to the storyteller. When we had accomplished our goal for the one shot, they suddenly were like, oh, we've secretly been stocking up on, I don't know, silver bullets or enchanted, whatever it is in E5 yeah. that's like extra bad for vampires. And like, like turned and suddenly started attacking everybody. And I felt like I was almost more pissed at the storyteller than I was at them because yeah. it was like, clearly the rest of us had not come into this for that experience. Mm-hmm. And more broadly, I think having that kind of structure where everybody is able to pass these secret messages that just kind of fosters a spirit of distrust. It's not that it creates it, but if the the seed of it is there, it adds water to it. And yeah. I'm not there for that experience. I hate games that are like trader games and everything like yeah. that. Yeah, I can f- find those fun, but I need to know that's what I'm playing. I had to right. find and be in the right mood for it. And it's it's like a different category than most role playing for me. Yeah, I need to know beforehand so I can say I'm not playing. <laughs> so. Yeah, LARPing does have some of that at least the, LARP, the ongoing LARPs, but it's easier because it's not like every... If there's only like th- five people at the table or something and like two of them are traitors, that's very different than if there's 30 people and like five of them are tra- Like, it, it feels yeah. Uh But also like, if this goes back to the player conflict. Thing, yeah. Again, you can have games, totally fine to have games where like all the characters generally get along well. But if you're not going to do that, I do think having the play, like have everything still open on the table. Don't write yeah. note things back and forth. Just say, oh, I'm stocking up on this thing when the other guys aren't looking. And everyone's like, oh, that's interesting. And then it like, it's more like when you're seeing a movie or TV show or something. It's, it's now like dramatic. You get to play into dramatic irony with your character. And you can have, yeah, like you as a player aren't going to feel railroaded, even if your character will feel totally. Yes, exactly. And it also means like, I also don't like blue bookings because even if it's not antagonistic or, or conflict based, it's a whole bunch of role playing that just doesn't really impact the table in the same way. It, yeah. If you have everything in front of everything, even if it's like, okay, you're just having a scene, one on one scene, and the other players are there though. Yeah. They're a part of it still, and it's still happening. And if it's like, if you have something in the background and it comes up, even if it's like, oh, I secretly saved us all, it's still, I don't like it because it's, it, it just feels like a Deus Ex Machina at that point. You're like, where this was not demonstrated in the story. I did not see this coming. It's just, 
out yeah. of nowhere. It yeah. falls back into that trap of certain players getting more of the limelight than others, which creates yeah. kind of bad feeling. So. Yeah, and it's limelight that you're not even seeing. It's right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're watching somebody back and forth passing notes with the storyteller and you're not, like, that, that's not inclusive. <laughs> even if we are, like, why am I here? Why don't we just go, like, stay at home and text, text the ST? Right. Anyway, for, for keeping a diary, totally fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's fine. Keeping a diary is okay. But the I find if you start getting into role-playing scenes and stuff where like other yep. players aren't there, even if it's text-based scenes. But putting that aside, I want to just quote one sentence from the next page, which is, with voice and video conferencing capabilities increasing every day, <laughs> yes. to say nothing of the potential of virtual reality, the internet will remain a growing resource for gamers. I'm like, oh. Yeah, because this whole time I'm going like, well, they're talking about, this is what online games were. I'm like, that's definitely, this is not what online games have been for me lately. So this is, yeah. <laughs> and then they to be fair, I don't, I think online games had moved beyond this by like 12 to 18 months after this book came out. So, I mean, this was, this was right when the forums were being launched. So. Yeah, but they're talking about like IRC and email. The forums is a new venue, but it's still text-based asynchronous. It's not that different from a play by email. No, yeah, of course. But but yeah, the voice chat on Discord, that's a whole different thing. I think we could probably do a whole separate episode just on online gaming at some point and like the yeah. the needs of that format. But anyway, then we get some stuff about rules. Rules are not your enemies, it says. Players may beg to differ. One key passage in here is read through the rules and carefully consider which ones you like or don't like. Yeah, the, the, the general idea is don't surprise people as to what the rules are going to be yes. for playing in the game. And that that is a lot of the ways I've heard, I've seen both, unfortunately, experienced in per person playing and seen people online talk about, in general, talk about the golden rule. And No, it doesn't mean like, let's just pull the rug out and nobody knows how anything's going to work and, and just the storyteller just says something happens. Like that, yeah. that's not cool. Don't do that. Doesn't mean you need detailed point by point house rules that are like this thick tome but you should try to have i think yeah. it's also fine personally to say like if a situation comes up and a rule doesn't cover it you don't have a homebrew to cover it and you have to yeah. adjudicate it on the spot i think it's fine to say we're going to do it like this this time but i'm going to sit down and think about this for the future and it may not be the same moving forward but if like you were playing in a game and you're like, oh, I'm going to go do ravaging, like something was involving or it makes sense for your character to ravage a, a mm -hmm. dreamer. And then you find out either ravaging works completely differently or right. it's not even allowed. It's not just this in the setting. And you find it at the moment you're deciding you, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah. It's even worse when it's something that you've essentially built your character around. Yes. Yep. And then it's like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> so. Yeah, we're just going to ignore all these social attributes entirely from your game, from this game. Oh, and we're going to get to more about social yep. attributes later, too. Mm -hmm. And anyway, uh, it does kind of kick the can down the road a little bit when it comes to things like combat and glamour, but we'll get to alternative systems for that in Chapter 3, I believe. Yep. So then we have notes on character development, and I quite liked the thoughts they had about the affection players have for their characters and how that plays into advancement. I thought that was a nice topic to talk about for this. And in particular for the storyteller, how that translates into managing experience. Like how much do you give? How do you do you ask for justification and explanation for raising traits? No more than three per session and keep it lower than that. Was like Sometimes four. 
sometimes for rarely, but not the not as the as the rule. And I'm just thinking about other or exceptional role playing. Yeah. Anyway, there's because uh, I've seen other people talk about at least five is how they run their games, and I'm like, yes, yeah. five as a floor is like. I guess that's mage with that experience table. Yeah. <laughs> well, and speaking of mage, I found the section here on glamour to be very mage like. It says things like work with each player to find out how his character views glamour, both philosophically and as a literal force in the world. It's like, well, that's paradigm. So, yep. I like that idea for flavor and probably not much else. Like, I don't, I, I want paradigm based mechanics in Mage. I don't want them in Changeling. But I think what <laughs> is more significant for Changeling is to kind of consider it in relation to the game's level of glamour as well as the type of characters in the motley or whatever like are they silly or unsealy is the game glamour poor or glamour rich because answering those questions is going to have an impact on when you say to the players think about how your character thinks of glamour so like if you're in a glamour poor setting and the motley is all unsealy ravaging and the attitude towards glamour that's tied up in that is going to be treated very differently than mm-hmm. in a Sealy game where there's glamour pouring from all the fountains or whatever. So kind of hashing those things out, I almost feel we can keep going into negative numbers. There should be a session negative three where the storyteller has to just on their own sit down and figure out how they feel about these. Yeah, But I mean, some of the things you're talking about too, don't some of these parameters don't necessarily have to be constant across the prompt. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, like, yeah. like, and they could be different PCs could have different views. Yeah, like I, I've had a lot of games where player characters switch courts, and that becomes that will influence this kind of thing. I've had like, well, you're currently there's where are you right now? Is this a very glamorous place or a very banal place? Like, mm-hmm. and that creates drama. I mean, to move from mm-hmm. one to the other, and it's like, oh no, like. We've been operating in this one way, and suddenly we can't anymore. And yeah, how do they figure? You do that like out? a very gritty, low glamour thing, and then they end up in the dreaming, and you're like, okay, the players, are, yeah, the player characters are what's going on? <laughs> Which leads us to the discussion of bedlam and banality on page thirty-six. I feel so annoyed about this. <laughs> yeah, because frankly, they feel like such minor threats anymore in C twenty. <laughs> oh, okay. So you yeah. like this? You're annoyed because of C twenty. I'm annoyed because this this passage is no longer useful. Uh, or... Banality is, I'd say. It's, it's yeah, that's b- fair. bedlam that's basically gone. Unless you're in an anime. <sighs> My assumption is that those things were minimized in part because people felt like it sucked the fun out of the game to roleplay them. Yeah. I had trouble with the second edition core. I kind of ignored the advice in those books running it because mm-hmm. it would be literally we wouldn't been able to last 30 sessions. <laughs> That's fair. For sure. Yeah. Like we would have fallen to like, you know, people would have started hitting their, well, some of them would have started hitting their rules to forget that character creation and other, any grump. And then other people would be like, you're picking up so much banality that, <laughs> and then you try to deal with it. You're also going to be in second stage bedlam where you're also hitting them. Yeah. At least with the way the types of games we were running, it'd be like you would be both falling to banality and in, and falling to bedlam at the same time. Yeah. So related to that, I mean, just in terms of of writing out a character, have you ever killed off a character in a game, or would you accept having your character killed off if if it was justified? <laughs> have I ever killed off a player character? Yes, it's very rare. Or otherwise removed them from the 
Yeah, it's the I mean, not counting when, like, oh, the player wants to play a new character or is leaving the Chronicle. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, but sure. it's happened occasionally, very rarely. My player characters, for some reason, I'm very unlucky with the dice unless it's my character's life is on the line. I don't get it. Mm. So I've only had one, two player characters died, and one of them was because the entire world ended. So that'll do it. It was a Sabbat yeah. game, and the Antediluvians woke up. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever killed off a character or been killed off. I'm like struggling to, well, again, with the exception of, as you said, there was a story opportunity to play a new character that worked really well and I took it, but. It's never yeah. been, it hasn't been changed. Like, I don't think I've ever had a character die, but there's been the occasional like, okay, there's been a lot of fighting going on and you just kept jumping, like the player keeps jumping their character into something they're not prepared for and they eventually die. <laughs> Like that's well, not, that's, that's their own downfall. <laughs> yeah, but that that's sort of the thing, right? Like or, I tackle the antediluvian, or occasionally one character kills off another one in a very yeah. But it does. I mean, it gives advice about how to handle that if that is something you want to include in your in your chronicle, mm-hmm. along with some other long term goals. Which even if they're never achieved, I think it's good for characters for players to know what those are for their mm-hmm. characters and for you to know as a storyteller. Yeah, there's definitely been consequences for things and things going badly for player characters lives and things like that yeah my my long-term goal is to run another changeling game and even more so to conclude one satisfactorily yeah (laughs) i think i might need to figure out how to plan more and actually come up with a chronicle arc that will end yeah generally speaking i think it is hard to end a game because people do get invested in their characters and like you said there are these kind of loose threads and it takes courage to end a game there's a note here about crossover where it emphasizes the best use of other supernaturals is as mysterious elements. And then it's like, your characters have not read the rule books, and many players forget this. But Well, my next game I want to run is a crossover changeling mage game, so screw that. So Well, <laughs> I do like teasing the players and doing the whole bringing in things the people who read the other games and are familiar with them think is they know what's going on and doesn't. Uh-huh. So will your mages be the descendants of those four star children, like in second edition? No, if they're playing, no, I want to have a player character. That'll be fine. But like, no. you know, things like, no, that's not a vampire. <laughs> no, that's that's a vampire chimera, which they mentioned later. Yeah. Just bring in a chimera that like fits like being a wraith or a garu or kindred or whatever. Or those sorcerer chimera from Dreams and Nightmares. Yeah. Bring in those kind of things. The and the player character is super knowledgeable. It'll be like trying to puzzle out what's happening. And you're like, mm-hmm. right. That basically concludes chapter one. Chapter two, design yes. questions. Basically an FAQ. Yeah, that's what it says. I mean, I don't think we need to. Oh my God, this art. Um... <laughs> is this just from like the, I... the Isle of Menahune book? I I... It's not from it. Maybe it was like rejected pieces i'm not sure Mm -hmm. but i I don't even know i don't even know where to begin nomination for most phallic art piece in changeling anyway yeah i don't think we need to go through all of the specific faqs but did you have any that kind of stood out to you yeah well a lot of these are yeah something contradicted by c20 well yeah or contradicted by other changeling books including other faqs but it does say that the dreaming is not the same as the Umbra. Yes, here it is. 
It also says trolls take banality when they have to duck to go through a doorway, though. So, yeah, that was you know. that was definitely second ed thing. <laughs> the one that kind of stood out to me was when they said using a handgun might result in a point of banality because it's too modern, and I'm like, that seems pretty excessive. I mean, yep. even for two e, that's pretty excessive. Even for one e, yeah, that was, was like maybe not a knocker, but a sheesh or what. A lot of she came back as cops. How, right? Yeah. So it just doesn't. There is the thing in here about how iron can create a wraith, but it's a sometimes thing. Yeah, wraiths are a sometimes thing. One thing in here that I think is genuinely really useful and still useful is page forty-six, which has a full-page sidebar on seeming versus mean. Mm -hmm. However, this is also entirely cut and pasted from Book of Lost Dreams. So. <laughs> yeah, I was confused. This is a few things in this book, I think, are from Book of Lost Dreams or other, maybe Book of Solar Killer Secrets. I was, I was like, have I read this? Did we do this book already? Yeah. No, I don't remember the first chapter. We're going to get to the big one in chapter four. So. Yeah. And the art just, what? <laughs> this has nothing to do. Well, and the page 48 and page 49, I assume, was kind of, again, extra art from Land of Eight Million Dreams, which John mm-hmm. Dollar did a lot of pieces for ironically it's all talking about glamour and the dreaming which doesn't have a role yeah. in of eight million dreams go figure i like how the first two faq things here are like where does the new storyteller begin what advice can you offer and i'm thinking that is literally this entire book how could you possibly hope to distill an answer to that into a single paragraph and then the final faq question we get is where is arcadia <laughs> it's like <laughs> Somewhere in between those two poles, there are some useful clarifications in here, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But, or possibly doesn't even exist anymore. Right. So yeah, but that's chapter two in its entirety, mm-hmm. all nine pages of it. And then chapter three. And then more art. What? <laughs> it's not that the art's all bad in here. It's just, I guess, what would you, what art would you have about storyteller advice or something? But I mean, I'm, I don't hate it. I'm just perplexed by it in many cases. So chapter three is about actually using the rules rather than discarding or sidestepping or modifying them, which, Mm -hmm. you know, all right. And we start with kind of a very extensive discourse on perception and noticing, which I'll admit is not something that I had really devoted a lot of time to thinking about before the first time that I read this book. And I think that this did actually shape a lot of my yeah. way that I handle that in game. Yeah. Going back to my conflict advice, it also helps with that. <laughs> if you can. <laughs> but yeah, the this book, like most of this stuff here is not very changing the world of darkness specific, this chapter. Yeah. Like, there's exactly. some stuff that is like epiphany, but like this I will shout out to a podcast that's never heard of ours, probably called Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. If you don't listen to it, they give lots of good advice for this type of thing, I think. So I hope they've heard of us. I'm sure they've heard of Mage the Podcast. Well, Ken and Robin, if you're listening, you're great. Yeah. What's your general method for like handling characters noticing things? That is a thing where I'll occasionally have roles happen, but usually not. Yeah. I'll do the the whole parrot syndrome thing is a thing that I'm concerned about, but I'm pretty much like oh, I'm- I'm 100% guilty of that as a as a player. <laughs> but I'll be like, okay, so here's what's. But again, if you if you're doing it in the mode where, like, if the players and the characters are separate in their knowledge, and everyone as a player is working together, 
and yeah like you can then it's like oh i'll say this thing and like a lot of times the player will just be like because you don't need to have every bit of thing be in character dialogue like that does not yeah yeah but yeah. sometimes they'll be like yeah i just let you know what happened there or you say it to the puka and they come up with a very interesting alternative description of what you just told them but <laughs> well and that's a, that's a role-playing opportunity yeah. for somebody and mm-hmm. that's if that arises sure but yeah. just for the sake of saving time if a storyteller character tells me as a player character, you know, three full minutes of dialogue and I'm the only one who understands it for whatever reason, I'm using Willow Whisper or whatever, I'm just going to turn to the other players and say, I repeat that because unless yeah. there's some motivating reason for me to change it, I just want to keep the story. Yeah, moving. I'm not going to do the the passing notes part of it. Like that's just... Yeah, 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 yeah. I do like the suggestion here for those brave enough to do it of allowing the players with like the higher perception to kind of define some of the details. And like, you can always stop them and say, no, it's not quite what you see, but. Oh, I do that a lot, even without talking about higher perception or whatever. Yeah. There's so much of the game world where let players make stuff up. I mean, they're doing that because it's like they talk about later about chimerical companion, your allies, your contacts. I mean, they're defining those things anyway. They're already defining pieces of the game world. Why not let them define other parts of the setting, right? Like, Yeah, and it gives players a chance to kind of show their characters' personalities as yeah. well. Like, you know, the, the she-countess walks in and you're all immediately awestruck by her beauty. And if a character or if a player is like, well, not in that dress and that hat. I mean, like that kind of moments like that, I think, are really rich. Yeah. I, for... I, I don't base it on traits on their character sheet or roles or whatnot, though, I find. Okay because it's not their character doing this thing right they're the, the actual facts of the world like let the player come up with it yeah. even someone not on the scene i'll like i've also done sort of related to this i'll be like oh uh we have this things happening with another npc there's going to be a lot of chatting and it's not it, it, sometimes it makes sense it's like well a player whose character isn't in this scene just plays an npc mm-hmm. so and then they're making stuff about that npc so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, generally, I'll I'll establish the floor of what I want everybody to notice. And then yeah. if players feel like they want to explore, I'll let them. And then if there's the chance that they'll discover something that is like a, a story linchpin, then ask for a role. I do have this weird thing, though, with multiple groups of players where they want to make canning roles. And I'm like, I can just describe to you. No, I want to make canning role. And then they'll like, They'll all get like four or five successes. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not everything is magical, people. Well, no, maybe there is a magical thing happening. They want to do all the... I'm like, I can just tell you what the... Right. It's not a... (laughs) One success from one of you will do. Yeah. Kenning is also, I mean, both Kenning and alertness. It's one of those things where I know that some storytellers just say, if you have perception plus alertness and it's seven dice and the difficulty is six, I'm just going to say you succeed. I'm not going to make yeah. you roll. It's going to waste time. Yeah, that's that's the kind of rule of thumb I do for a lot of rolls, is if you have more than yeah. at least as many dice as the difficulty. Just In stark contrast, though, for, with the following section on social interaction, I will never reduce social interaction to just dice rolls. I hate that. <laughs> and that, I know, is a personal thing for me, but... When we talk about downtime, what that means, like some scenes aren't scenes, right? There's just things that happen in the background. Or yeah, for sure. And you just briefly graze over what it, what I'll also do, like they talk about this where you have a scene and then you roll the dice. And I've seen this kind of thing in Wraith and things like that. And I, I think that's backwards. Like if you want to have the social stuff roll, 
roll your dice, whatever difficulty. Or you want to be fancy about it, just roll the dice and keep the deck the numbers. Or not tell them what the difficulty is. Yeah, roll the dice, and if you botched, roleplay a botch. And if you've got right. really good successes, doesn't mean you have to be a great... Like, as the NPC, it's like, okay, you got five successes, and this person's kind of bumbling through it. They still got what they were aiming for, right? Within reason, though, if, if the five successes on a normal... Make them earn it. Yeah, yeah, they did it. It's like, they roleplay it. But the, I, I think roll, rolling it first, and then you roleplay it works better than you roleplay it, and then you roll, and the dice didn't match this. Because if you rolled it, and yeah, and you got one success, you got five successes, you botched, you didn't get to have the fun of roleplaying a botched social interaction. So, Which some people can't stand. I mean, they can't stand failing, but... Ooh. If they can't stand failing on a dice roll, I think this yeah. is the wrong <laughs> game for them. Yeah. It's also the kind of thing which I, I'm going to say it because I think it's true. I think older editions, at least of D&D, have kind of poisoned the well in this direction because people associate rolling your way through your problems. Mm. And D&D has gotten better about inviting role-playing, but it's never kind of required it quite as fully as it feels like World of Darkness does or other storytelling focused yeah. games do. Although from what I've from what I've heard about D D in like the seventies it wasn't like that. This is like an eighties and nineties D D problem. Well I don't know. Seventies D D you still needed miniatures. <laughs> yeah, well I mean still need it now technically. But but what I mean is that what I've heard describing it, they're like actually doing a lot of role playing and not using a lot because like you didn't have most skill rolls for they didn't have skills. So <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the general challenge was kill a monster, not seduce the I don't know, chambermaid. Uh it could be it could be seduce the monster. That would still get you this much gold. It's true. Speaking of which, we do have a, a couple notes on romance here mm-hmm. and some other I think romance, again, it's probably a topic that deserves its own episode, but is mm-hmm. also one of those things that lines and veils and some more recent vice is probably more useful for. Yeah. I don't know. I've uh, once I got into high school, it stopped being a big deal for me. So, like, <laughs> your mileage may vary. That's mm-hmm. so. All right. This this is a contentious topic on page fifty seven that I want to get your opinion on. Mm-hmm. Epiphanies. What do? I'm not gonna say I like exactly what they did here, like how they did it, but I'm glad there's a lot more about it. Yes. I find in any edition, there's just not enough meat on those bones for that little, like a few die rolls. And it's like, what does this even mean? And why am I rolling these dice? And this is a lot better. There's things I might, it's a good starting point at the very least. And then I might think about next time I'm running it, like grab this and then think about how I'm going to house rule it. And then that's the place. Like that's how to actually do it. As opposed to what's in the books where it's just too bare bones to work. Yeah. I was trying to remember, I didn't check in preparing for this episode, how much of this might have been ported over from the Enchanted, because if you remember, there was actually quite a bit in there. But also, how often do you ask players to roleplay epiphanies or just conduct them? Because some players hate it. Some players don't want to go near it. They just want their dross and eat it too. Okay. If they have the dreamer's background, I'd maybe do it like a quarter of the time they have to roll to use their dreamer's. Sorry, they have to do the some sort of scene for it. But other than that, like if they're going to use epiphanies when they don't have, like they haven't spent points on having dreamers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that, those are generally scenes or se- series of scenes. Yeah. And I'm also inclined to go with the uh, too much using your prehold for glamour is a 
great way to yeah. bedlam. Oh, there's a quote somewhere in this section that says, use the first stage of bedlam liberally. And I'm like, well, well, yes, indeed. And now C20, mm-hmm. it's like, ah. Oh, yeah, it. no, I work, I gotta get it, I gotta finish it up. I'm working on like my first storyteller's bowl. I just want to get it cleaned up. And then like, I have rules of how to use C20 yeah. with that. And it just comes down to like, roll your glamour against gaining nightmare, I think was the idea. And hmm. along the triggers based on the finality on the bedlam morning science checklist that's the basic idea if you want to just do that pull that out not all the checklist items make sense in that context but the ones that do it's like yeah i come up and like roll this and again don't throw it on them out of nowhere like and it has the slow slide in a way that they can address and see because i didn't like the whole oh you're now stage threshold because like stage one bedlam out of nowhere that's like a big jump I also think, though, that the lack of risk of bedlam isn't why people gravitate so much towards the freeholds and the draws. Yeah. I think it's just kind of, maybe this is just the feel of the landscape to me at the moment. I almost feel like there's an aversion to the comparatively subdued role-playing of an epiphany or what people think will be the sub- it doesn't have to be i mean a ravaging can be just as intense and fantastic as going into the dreaming and fighting yeah. a dragon but people don't think it will be and this is not just a new thing like there was no, a no, lot no, of, of second ed changeling where they just threw out bedlam entirely right but they made more effort in the older editions to really be like hey maybe you should mm-hmm. try role-playing it like i feel like that yeah. was more foregrounded yeah. yeah so i would like system for bedlam that's my <laughs> Of some sort. I have an idea for one. And that's... If I had my druthers, everyone would have to do an epiphany, a proper epiphany scene, like at least once per story. But people would freak out. Oh, once per story. Depending on what you mean by a story. Again, I haven't packed my my previous comment. I'm not sure what that is. But like, not once per session. That's a bit much. No, well, I would like to have one player do one epiphany scene each session. Uh, I think that would be nice to kind of like wrap up or start off each session. That would require a more episodic structure. You can't just have them if they're in the middle of a dreaming quest. Oh, I'm going to go pop off and ravage someone. It's like... That makes no sense. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, no, I I think on average, on average, once per session, one player character. I'm I'm on there. Or you could have a separate session that's like an interlude between Mm -hmm. stories where everybody does one scene. That's an epiphany. That also is fine. And epiphanies... Like, I would love to see somebody role-play a Great Rhapsody. I'd like to think I've role-played Great Rhapsodies before, but I haven't seen mm. else. I have not seen a lot of Rhapsody. It's in-game. Yeah. It's really messed up, but... Yeah. Well, also, why would you do it? Well, because if you're it? playing a Leonin... Yes, okay, yeah. there you go. But <laughs> otherwise, why would you... Yeah, and this actually ties back to another piece of advice that's not in this book, but I think it's a really good idea, is I have this thing that I fall into it. I'm not the only one mm-hmm. where the game is just a whole bunch of like scenes in the same day over and over. And we've been like playing for 10 sessions and two days have passed in game. Oh yeah. Don't I hate that. do that. Like it's easy to fall into if you're not careful. Like it doesn't mean by downtime, but to me downtime, you should have multiple downtimes per session. Maybe like that's fine. Maybe not every session, but like some sessions you could be like, okay, we're going to have a scene and it's doing some stuff and maybe there's like another scene of some other characters maybe we're not even, all even in the same scene and then like two weeks passed where we just sort of have a sketch of what happened yeah glazed over in like 30 seconds and now we have like another scene right like that's i think part of that is the wide variability in how long a scene can last like yeah a scene can be 
a few minutes long or a scene can be an entire evening at like of game time. Yeah. And I can also have a scene where you have multiple scenes happening at once. Um, yeah. 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 Like the Duke's ball. That's a scene. Mm-hmm. The individual conversations each character is having throughout the night. They don't have to be scenes. They can uh, be scenes, but it's like... I would say the Duke's ball could be more than one scene quite easily. Ball's too long. For well, but it depends on your game. If the goal is just to yeah. go to the ball, find the secret room, and leave, that that shouldn't take as much... Yeah, no. I meant like the Duke is hosting a ball, and from the opening of the ball to like everyone goes home, if the player characters are there for all that, that's not one scene to me. I think it's more determined by the beats that you're intending to hit in the story rather than the actual complexity that could be there. But it's, I mean, that's what I mean is that it's open to the storyteller to define. And I think a lot of people struggle to precisely hit it in a way Mm -hmm. that, that keeps the game moving in a way that. Yeah. I like going to television, especially for my Mm. metaphors along here. So you can have different genre, different types of TV shows and your game, different sessions might have different genres or even if you're doing a soap opera thing, you might have soap, soap opera style scenes are actually quite good because if the characters are not all together and you're jumping between, if they're happen to be together, then you can do something different, right? You can have an action scene. You could have all sorts of stuff, but like, I don't think they generally will last many hours in game. We will be doing a television episode soon, so these are good discussions yes. to have for that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in talking about the temporal mechanics, but yes. In terms of other time-saving things and and time sinks, there are simplified combat rules here, which is mm-hmm. good. I don't hate these rules. Yeah. Basically what they say is you do a single dice roll of a tribute plus ability that's appropriate for what you're trying to do instead of doing initiative and damage and soak. So it's kind of just abstract. I think that's fine, except for two things. First, they say if a character gains less than three successes, they were partially successful, which I think is too punitive. I'll usually say, as long as you've got more than one, you did what you wanted. If you've got only one, you might have some kind of like complication or mm-hmm. something to deal with. But So there's that. And then the other thing, though, is... I think this works better for players towards the storyteller because for storyteller characters attacking the players, they kind of do need to know how much damage they've suffered. And it's kind of good not to just hand wave that. I find both of these, both the simplified and diceless combat are both too complicated and too simple for what I want. I don't like the diceless combat ones at all. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> my, my other favorite RPG is a diceless game. It's not this, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. This this is not the way to do diceless this combat. Is like in my bad opinion. version of Amber or something. But like also, yeah, exactly. The, the way I go approach it is okay. We're either gonna basically use combat rules. Maybe not like every little. No one remembers to use maneuver. Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll get into like we'll use the combat rules, or we go. This fight doesn't matter. The conclusion is foregone. As to like it's, it's, it's we just skip the system entirely if it yeah in summary there are other and probably better ways to simplify your combat system yep if you so choose or in c20 just unleash something into combat that'll you can't just unleash your way through all your problems josh <laughs> we end with some cantrip system suggestions i like these a little bit better because they draw from the same kind of give the player some control approach to dealing with parrot syndrome that we got mm-hmm. earlier and it kind of prefigures unleashing to an extent I mean, in in the sort of relying on narrative more than dice to get what you want done. 
especially for minor cantrips that don't really do anything other than propel the story forward. It's like, yeah, you don't have to go through the whole song and dance of figuring out the difficulty and whatever. I mean, just do it. In general, I find you don't need to always roll dice for whatever. Yeah. If the players insist they like they want to roll it for some reason, they want to like actually get down. There's they probably have a reason for it, and usually that's fine then. But like, and sometimes you'll be like, oh, we need a dice roll here, whatever. But a lot of the times, no. But I would say for cantrips, I don't know if it really specifies here, but I would for cantrips still, you still spent the glamour and or willpower that you're going to yes. spend. And yeah, yeah, like definitely. That. And if it's a major impact on the story, yeah. If it's not major impact on the story, we don't need to roll. Or if it's like a foregone conclusion that it'll happen. <laughs> like it's, or it'd be really annoying if a botch happened on that. You're like, no, this is. <laughs> but you don't want, you don't want to like introduce the risk of a botch just for somebody to like kick down a door or something. It's yeah. Like, All right. Yeah, just like... It's like, yeah, you're like, okay, your dice pool on this cantrip is 10 and base difficulty would be three. We're not rolling. That's. <laughs> so then, then we get into chapter four. And the supporting cast, which starts with mortals. I almost want to make this required reading for players. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's solid, I have to say. Yeah, this is another, like, it's, I don't think this is a cut and paste from Enchanted, but it's, like, covering a lot of the same ground. But in a good way, it's, I like it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we need to get into details about all the advice. It's just, go mm-hmm. read it. I mean, think about friends and family. Well, it's great handling the whole, like, imagine you did have to keep this secret from someone close to you. Like, that's messed up (laughs) yeah it's not a good solution i like that well in the same way that you want your well or you might want your characters to kind of establish the connections they have before the game even starts it's good to know the mortal connections that are important to them more than in other world of darkness games changelings have actual connections with mortals not just people to feed from or and they actually flat out say that here like it's the yeah. one that's most yeah, and it gives you it gives you hooks to fold into the story. I mean, that's useful for you as a storyteller. If your autumn person relative turns up, what then? You know, one thing that's in here again, I didn't compare with the enchanted to see what was copied and pasted, but it mentions retinues, and I wish that they were kind of more expanded because that is a major part of at least European mm-hmm. fairy lore. It is like the whole parade of enchanted mortals that are following the she lord. It's like, mm-hmm. those people all have story. <laughs> have you ever been in a game where PCs have retinue? Oh, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anyone take it. I may have seen someone take it and it didn't come up, but I don't remember. But I definitely have not seen it matter in the game. I think it's because it's not described enough. There's yeah. not enough support for how to use that background. And there should be. It's also a bit creepy. Well, yeah, it should be. Yep. Changelings are creepy. Yeah, dreamers, definitely. I've seen that. Allies, contacts, all those things. Oh, yeah. Not retinue. For NPCs, sure. It's like, but it's usually like you are the she with like or occasionally a red cap. I think I actually did it once with a red cap PC I mine. I think he may have had retinue. Traveling buffet. No, it's his gang. Oh, okay. That's fine. Yeah. There is a helpful note in this section where it says not every mortal encounter needs a full backstory, mm-hmm. but I would also add to that there are plenty of tools out there where if the moment comes up where you do need a backstory on the spot for a mortal you can just have i don't know a randomized table or a deck of cards or whatever to just pick two or three noteworthy traits if they come up like yeah yeah here's this random goon and he draw a card he's very snappily dressed 
and he has a face that only a mother could love. Like, you know, just kind of random details that help. What I do sometimes if I'm not using a tool is I will come up with mixing traits from at least three different people I've known personally that the players don't know. Oh, good. And occasionally there's one of the players do know, but usually it's... Glance around the table quickly and create a hodgepodge. Well, I made a major NPC once based on someone the players knew, but that was a difference. I checked with him first and thought it was hilarious. That being said, there is also the suggestion that at least you should have willpower, banality, and important merits and flaws marked down. Depends on what we're talking about. Like you can you can create that on the spot because like you should be able to do that too. And having a list of names is important too. But I mean, the banality is easy to come up with. I find and willpower three that works. But it's the kind of thing too where it's like if they're walking through a crowded street and they're like, I grab a random mortal. Yeah, you can just say like, okay, this mortal has pull a random item off the list. This mortal is cursed or whatever. Or like they're going, they're two people and they're talking and they're like. Uh, our scene we're walking down and let's go have some ice cream and they buy the ice cream from someone and the role play speaking to the ice cream person okay i don't know if you need to give the ice cream person the the stats but we then get some notes on antagonists the sort of um gen x neo-pagan thread shines through strong in this section oh yeah (laughs) the very churchy dantane i'm like all right i mean Hey, hey, they specifically said there's been too many Dantane psychiatrists, so now there's going to have Dantane churchy people. Yeah. I'm always a little bit sus when the writer biases are so foregrounded, even if I agree with them. That's really my take on that. I do like, though, there's a good note where it says the most insidious autumn person is not likely to be someone that characters have ever met before. And I'm like, perfect. Yep. Top to your sentence. Yep. In any case, more story hooks and side quests. There's Chimera. Chimera! I love this section. I don't know if I needed it, but I, I loved it because I agreed with it. I loved this section to a point. I do like the sort of taxonomy they have here where there's the independents who are background characters or story opportunities, yeah. the companions who require the most work, but you know, are very gratifying. And the players can do some of that work. So that's good. Yeah. The guardians who seem more like story moments than anything else. And then the antagonists the antagonists are further subdivided into monsters, flunkies, and villains. I want stats on that antagonist what fish that's carrying a wristwatch. I just think. Excellent. Is it a I, it is a wristwatch, but it looks like it could also be like a Fitbit or something. Wait, this is before there's Fitbits. So. Uh, yeah. But nowadays it could be. Yeah. Important sentence. Chimera should not overpower characters with the exception of chimerical antagonists who will eventually be overcome. So all you players who would have swole companions take note. Yeah, I'm okay with Pokemon Trainer as a character concept. But... Yeah, but you don't want your Pokemon to be the one defeating all of the enemies and not your character. Yeah, I don't know. I at least am not here to play Chimera the Dreaming. Yeah. That's me. One of the weird things about this section is that the first person voice comes through a lot. Like, it comes through at several points in the book, but here there's a lot of I- yeah, which I found weird, but but it wasn't in character first person, so that's good. That would have been weird if it's like yeah, I'm yeah, a yeah. chimerical companion, and I'm going to do yeah. <laughs> it. Was I as a changeling gamer have experienced yeah. this? And I'm like, oh, okay. I agree with. I don't know if this is the part you were talking about when it talks about creating them, and it says it sort of emphasizes the original dreams and nightmares that spawned them. So thinking about who created them and why 
will affect what form they take mm-hmm. before they develop their own motives as characters. Yep. And I like that. I think that's important to think about. And we get some sample ones, three of whom are cats, one to two of which are kind of racist, but we'll put that aside. Yeah, what's with the racist cats? Stuff? Like, half, like half the chimera are cats. And what? Yeah. Can we agree that Percival is the best chimera? Uh... I'm just, I'm going to read this passage. Percival is a silver and emerald dragon about the size of a VW bug when curled up. He spouts an emerald green flame, is versed in a flurry of languages, and likes black licorice and apple-flavored jelly beans. Percival was created by an extended oath circle, actually three overlapping ones, to watch over a freehold. He doesn't like true mages and stares them down as much as he can. Even if they can't see him, they are aware of Percival watching. Yeah, I agree. That's the best one. He's so cute. Yep. With 85 chimera points. Yeah. Well, and then the the one non-racist cat also has Dodge 6 and Grimaire 5. And I'm like, what was that about Chimera not overshadowing the characters again? Eh, Well, I mean, having a high Dodge, it just runs away a lot. I suppose. But also Intelligence 5. That Chimera is smarter than most characters. Yeah, yeah. That's your uh, Charlie's Angels. Like, it's like, that's Charlie. I think I'm just annoyed that she's smarter than Percival. Yep. Anyway, get a few new reads. And then, uh, then we have the prodigal section, which is entirely copied and pasted from Book of Lost Dreams. I checked with one notable exception. What hilarious exception. <laughs> Technocrats no longer get a times five multiplier when you enchant them. By removing that, yes. they just took out the line of character. So virtual adepts are kind of like Nefondi now, <laughs> according to this. Yeah. Which still means that they get enchanted for longer than all of the other traditions, too. Yes. So, not exactly fixed, but (laughs) I don't think we need to rehash this. Go listen to the Book of Lost Dreams episode. I just wanted to mention virtual adepts are are basically enough according to this. There's all the details of the crossover stuff, but with all the stuff. Yeah, but I mean, it it is literally the exact same material as Book of Lost Dreams. Oh, I thought it was very familiar. I was like, oh yeah, allele consensus. Yeah, yeah, it's word okay. for word. Yeah, okay, there we go. I thought it looked familiar. I, I get it. I mean, this obviates the need for somebody to go buy Book of Lost Dreams, which is good. But didn't Book of Lost Dreams only come out not too long before this book? Yeah, the year before. Yeah. And it had the storyteller screen, so presumably at least some people would have gotten it. But Then we have some pirates. Yes, chapter five. Locales. It is an ongoing travesty to me that Changeling never got a proper historical setting, because I'm not counting Dark Ages Fae, but maybe on the Storyteller's Vault in the not-too-distant future. I'm going to say, I don't know who wrote this chapter. I don't know. Maybe I really like some other other stuff. Maybe they're a great person. I had so much trouble reading this chapter. The writing, I found it so terrible. Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) We start with the discussion of rural games, or rural chronicles, yeah. and I actually thought this was really solid advice, and I almost want to take this template and apply mm-hmm. it to all sorts of other different, other different contexts. So they start off by highlighting the sensory differences of like going from the city to mm-hmm. the country, and the ongoing presence of sort of history and tradition kind of coming to the fore. There were little things like you notice the night sky full of stars, which as somebody who has lived their entire life and basically the suburbs and cities, like I've never really seen stars before. <laughs> so we then have sort of three guiding principles for the games, which are 
everyone knows everyone else, or at least they think they do. It runs in the family, getting back to our kinship themes. And then memory has a very long reach because this is like where a lot of folklore gets generated. I just read this as like, I don't think a changeling could survive here due to the banality. It's just how it kept reading to me. But I think they looked for places to find glamour to counter that idea. Yeah. And I appreciated the effort. I still would probably not run a chronicle entirely in a rural setting, but I like that they took the time and attention to kind of plot all of this out. Mm-hmm. So um, that being said, they do continually describe it as being strange for changelings. And I'm like, it's kind of a limiting perspective. Like the Yildu are out there. There are Boggins out there for sure. Mm-hmm. There are Puka probably hanging out. Like, there are some changelings who would find it, if not comfortable, at least navigable. Mm-hmm. So they also mentioned Twin Peaks. And I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. keep an open mind. All of that is in stark contrast to the next section. <laughs> <laughs> it's titled Exotic. I don't think we need to go into any more detail about, yeah. about that. The last sentence is a good one where they say, anywhere can be an exotic setting if you look at it with a fresh perspective. And I'm like... Yes, you do not, as the rest of this section suggests, need an issue to be your point person. Yeah. So that was that was a study in contrasts, going from one to yeah. the next. And then, yes, the dreaming. I think this section might have been written before Dreams and Nightmares. Mm. Because it's, like, the knowledge is very vague. A lot of the same how-to-run-a-dreaming chronicle advice that we covered in our Dreams and Nightmares dive it's here, but there's basically no detail about it. Mm-hmm. It is possible some of the writers here never read Dreams and Nightmares too, even if it had come out first. It's true. Well, first. and remember, Dreams and Nightmares was written by three people we never heard from before or since. Yeah. <laughs> and then, okay, so we got just plain odd. Yes. It mentions underwater, which we will get to. Yeah. But also alien stories and what if stories, which I think yeah. are both good sources for kind of an off kilter chronicle and and then it gets into some historical stuff much of which i'm like yeah sure i'd have to invent a new game to play this here i don't think there's enough in changeling to do these yeah it's definitely a broad strokes kind of chapter overall in this section in particular but so briefly we have the mythic age which is pre-sundering where the fey are absolutely not your friends the ancient world where they start to become more defined by the folklore and legendary but also there are dragons is this supposed to cover from like 10,000 years ago until yes. th- like 1,000 years ago is <laughs> is the ancient world? So the Sundering was before... Anyway. Uh, I said broad strokes, didn't I? <laughs> but also the, the Sundering was like before agriculture or something? I did not get that impression. from other Listen, if, if people can homebrew Werewolf the Savage Age, then we can have Changeling the Mythic Age. Yeah, I just think we need so... another... I think the Mythic Age is like Troy, not... Well, to your point, there's not enough here to actually run a game on. It's yep. just like, wouldn't it be neat? I mean, yep. so then we have the ancient world. Uh, there is the wise advice that you can still have whatever tone you want here, as long as you just keep it consistent, which mm-hmm. I think is good to think about. Then there's the Middle Age, which has the same kind of themes as the rest of the Dark Ages games, the same sort of screeds about faith. Everyone knows how the shattering went, so that's a factor. Yeah, And then the Renaissance... The Renaissance, that was an interesting one to think about because, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of talk about the banality more than the glamour, but it would be fascinating to kind of explore the ferment between the two in that context, post-shattering. And it, it's the earliest setting where you could actually 
pretty easily use the rulebook to actually run right. it. Right. You actually have changelings as the default. Yes, and it can fall like you should take most of the she out, like and, and then you're good. Like it's yeah. And then we get the Caribbean and pirates. Yeah, that, I remember that period of time, the Caribbean. Uh, I've always wanted to do a, a pirates game. There was actually a Discord text game. I think it was Sales at Midnight, and it was a multi-splat server, but it was set in like early 18th century Caribbean, and the changelings were just pirate changelings, and that mm. was the entire setting. It had gone on too long and was too involved by the time I found out about it, but I talked yeah. with people who played in it. It seemed enjoyable. Then Victorian. I think there's there's Victorian Lost. Yeah, and there's Victorian Mage, just like there's Renaissance yeah. Mage. So you could... But not Victorian Changeling the Dreaming. No. But those, if you wanted some historical... Not that I read yeah. the Victorian Mage at all, but if you wanted some historical World of Darknessy, at least... And it is the era that we do actually have history for in most of the Kith books, unlike some other large periods of history. Yeah. So, And then the resurgence is obviously probably the easiest because... That would be a fun period too. Yeah, the 60s. So yeah, historical periods. I have other ones that I would be interested in running and some tentative projects in the pipeline involving historical changeling. But one story option, which I would love to run but I would also put it out there for other players to run is that you could very easily do the reincarnation game and you could run all seven of yep. these in order for a few sessions each and just have the characters incarnate from one to the next. Wasn't there a vampire thing about that's, I don't know, it was one, you weren't reincarnating, but wasn't there some sort of vampire chronicle that like spanned that period? Oh yeah. Well, there was like, yeah, the Giovanni Chronicles. Don't maybe use that directly for your changeling game, but no, this is much more fun than that. Yeah. The The complaint that people often have about the Giovanni Chronicles is that maybe in the first book, but then certainly in the second, third, and fourth, your characters are basically walking around watching metaplot events unfold. Yep. Having very little impact on them. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I do think a couple things to bear in mind. You want to do your research. And that applies to the heavy quote exotic settings to your research. Mm-hmm. You want to think about the metaphysics and the mechanics and how they shift from period to period. I know I have my own pet theory about the multiple shatterings unfolding through history mm-hmm. is kind of retconning phase memories of how they work through history. That's the advice I would give to anybody seeking to run a mm-hmm. historical or other unusual setting, I guess. Yeah. Are there any settings that you are keen to run a game in? Uh, I tend to do modern day. That's good. Although... This is more of a genre weirdness than a setting weirdness. I keep, I keep on wanting to do like techno thriller heavily based on Shadowrun, but set in the modern day changeling <laughs> game where you're like fixers who are like paid to go in and do questionable things. And anyway, well, if you're doing, if you're doing mage crossover, have trolls and virtual adepts and that's yep. Shadowrun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Someone was doing, again, for Lost, someone was doing New Wave Changeling set in the 80s, and I was so jealous. I'm like, I want to be in that game. Yeah. But uh, anyway, chapter six, Observations from the Field, a.k.a. three random essays. And nothing about flaming samurai. Wah, wah. Like the picture before it. Again, art that I think was probably supposed to be in Land of Eight Million Dreams, but they ran out of pages. I think the first one here did end up in Land of Eight Million Dreams. I'd have to check, but yeah. Yeah, this wasn't. This is just sort of more storyteller advice from a bunch of different storytellers. Yeah, I didn't come across anything terrible. 
The first one was nice because it points out what happens when you're a storyteller, a regular storyteller, and you're playing in somebody else's game. And there's like a clash between their style and your usual style and how to deal with that. And then the hero complex piece, which is basically what I was talking about when like one player wants the limelight all the time. And may the plot be with you is a fail state. I have a lot of trouble. I've tried to avoid a lot and talk about it. Yeah. Don't let the plot be more important than the characters. Yeah. Unless the players, everyone wants that. Or the players, yeah. Then we have Transcending the Mundane on the Hero's Path, which is a very flowery title for what I think has very little to actually do with that. Mostly rehashing the same advice. It's like, hold players to their preludes to give yourself story hooks to deploy. Pay attention to mood. Use tools to keep Mm -hmm. the game on track. And then have a well-done dramatic climax. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's storytelling. Yep. It does have the quote, when available, email is hard to beat. Oh, Hey, well, not everyone responds by email these days either. So it's kind of... Yeah, fair. Goblin paper is not recommended if you wish to keep permanent records. So cheeky. The third one I thought actually had an interesting note where they say, once the story gets moving, it's the players who set the pace. Mm-hmm. And storytellers, I think, often fail to realize that. They think they're the ones who have to set the pace. It's like, no, no, no. It's the players who do that. They choose how to respond to the plot. So if you want to work with them in order to adjust the pace to the point where you want it to, you have to kind of be open about that because players will derail things whether they intend to or not. Yes. Yeah. So. The, the one thing I would like was more help with that I've run into, and I'm, it's it's always tricky for me is when different players are setting different paces. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's probably my current big sticking when I run a game issue that I'm trying to figure out how to resolve. So not just pace, but also mood theme. Like they're all trying to, we might've discussed it broadly, but like, yeah. More topics for a session zero. Yeah. And more reasons to ask players to come up with long-term goals for their characters. But it's not just sessions. Like it, it, just because you've all described it and you all think you're on the same page at the beginning doesn't mean you are. It's, anyway. And so much of this just comes back to preparation and flexibility again. Yeah, but it's getting everyone else flexible. Like they're Yeah, oh yeah. The two yeah. players are being inflexible incompatibly. On, That's the... on everybody's part. On everybody's yes. part for sure. Yeah. But it gets lost so often in, in sort of the excitement, I think. Mm-hmm. Do we have an... the next chapter, which is like what? <laughs> this is the Yeah. So <laughs> Where to start with this appendix? First of all, we should say what it is. This is weird enough. We should yeah, say basically, the majority of it functions as a giant index, and it's like an index for all of the supplements. However, <laughs> it is exhaustive. I will say. I mean, it doesn't have all the books, does it? It doesn't have all the books, which is why I think this was written. It gets up to Book of Lost Dreams. So Dreams and Nightmares is not here. Kith book, Satyrs is not here. Book of Houses is not here. And I think something else is missing. So I feel like this was compiled in like September 1997 or something like that. Yeah. On top of that, what they chose to include is like so strange. Like It's a white wolf index. Like let's... Yeah, but it's like actions are included or difficulty... Yeah. Like, very basic concepts in the game. But also e- ether Radios. Right, right. Or, like, the disbarred flaw from Kithbook Knockers. You're like, whew, glad I know where that page is. 
and and the capitalization is completely all over the place and it really really frustrates me oh oh, it has the most art of any gaming book index i've ever seen which i assume were like some of them look like character portraits that never made it into uh particular books yeah like portraits that were cut from the immortalized trilogy maybe yeah i can't tell the kit of some of them and then like each individual level of the cantrips are separated out from the arts like it's just also equals e with an accent e with a different accent division symbol infinity reaming page 48 of change in the dreaming wait where was oh i see it there we go (laughs) yeah that's i don't know what's it's under that's a subheading of dreaming deep dreaming i guess that's Far dreaming? Supposed to be far dreaming, yeah. But I'd, I'd rather go to the dreaming. <laughs> oh my god, we need to yeah. make this story t- short trilogy <laughs> book supplement of just that dream realm. Yeah, whoever compiled this, certainly. I almost wonder if this was like the early days of Acrobat or like some where it was like when they first started having automated indexing. This is pre-Unicode, I can promise you that. Yeah, oh, for sure. So that explains the yeah. weird e-reaming. But yeah, the the weird capitalization the some things are boldface i'm not sure why they are some things are lowercase like yeah. attributes are lowercase for unknown reasons kiths are capitalized but like merits and flaws are capitalized well some of them are <laughs> the ones in the core book and the player's guide are not but the kith book ones are <laughs> there's like the kith book knocker treasures are in here but not the kith book slew ones like it's just i think there's some random legacies just stuck throughout it without being yeah like courtier craft okay is crafter what is that is that the legacy is that something else like it's uh it might be i know that the the romantic ones from nobles the shining host are in here because we need yeah. those oh do you know what it doesn't have <laughs> I'm, I'm gaining banality as i flip through this so. no it does not have the changeling storyteller's guide it does not truth <laughs> i mean i do think it, again going back to comparison with other white wolf other yeah. world of darkness storyteller handbooks this is something you do find in there but this i think is the worst example the most egregious example of how not to put it together thankfully that is not the last part of the book because the last two pages we do have some helpful lists of film novels and music that are inspirational okay so the film one we didn't do secret of rowan einish inish Inish, sorry. Which is one of my favorite films. It is the quintessential Selkie film. But we didn't cover it in the movie thing. Well, I mean, if you remember, I had said for myself, at least, I was trying to avoid ones that were specifically called out in this book. Yeah. And we talked about Labyrinth and Hook, Mm -hmm. so, and The Fisher King. And then we have some ads. I don't know what the ads are in the PDF, but on my side, it's Revised Vampire, The White Wolf Pins, Sorcerer's Crusade, Trinity Battleground, which are miniatures for Trinity, which I don't even think I knew existed. They might not have existed because what? (laughs) True. And then some novels. Lots of, five pages of ads is a lot of ads. I guess they're really trying to work up their budget. Yeah, I wonder wonder how changes could have done if they started having ads from like other companies and you're like, (laughs) you're like 1,000 flushes before whatever it's going to the back of the changeling book. (laughs) Just imagine seeing a TSR ad in the end of a Changeling book. That would be... Anyway, it's very 1998. Yep. And that's the book. We did it. So I want to say, what do we want to say for how this goes for overall thoughts and how do we think it fits in for modern storytellers? Players? Probably not players. 
Well, so on the one hand, I think it accomplished its goal of yep. hints, suggestions, and clarifications. But like I said, that goal is so open-ended that would, it would be hard not to meet that. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a worthy addition to a collection purely because C20 wasn't around long enough to have a good body of storyteller's lore. Flyer's Guide stuff, sure, but like yeah. storyteller-focused advice, some of what's in here is still really helpful for C20. Some of it, not so much anymore. I think the general storytelling strategy pointers and essays, if you haven't received that advice elsewhere, it's still fresh mm-hmm. enough to be useful. Yeah. I, at the time, I think it was fine. I mm-hmm. think... Unless you really want the racist depictions of cats, yeah. ethnic stereotypes. Like I'm not saying I, I, I there's a lot of the storyteller advice I agree with, but there's a lot of places these days to get good advice on how to run a game. And it's true. I do think it's still useful. Th- there's enough useful stuff in here to justify it if you mm-hmm. if you get it. I mean, I I don't think it's yeah. useless. By I don't think it's the least useful book in Changeling's history for a modern game but i think it's definitely in the lower half we're also both approaching this from the point of view of now veteran storytellers yeah and but i think if you're looking for good storyteller advice if you really want it in the form of a changeling book then yes (laughs) yes this This is probably the best book of changeling of storyteller advice for changeling in a book i'm still approaching it from the perspective of most people, if they've played any other role-playing games before coming to Changeling, yep. it was probably Dungeons & Dragons and or another World of Darkness game. Yeah, Whether or not that's correct, that's that's kind of my basis for saying, yeah, I think it's fine. I also mm-hmm. think, though, like when I compare it to something like the Mage Storyteller's Handbook Revised or, hell, even the Vampire one, <laughs> like, it's a far cry in terms of how much useful deployable stuff is there is for a game because it is i mean it is very i hesitate to say vague but it is very like non-specific it's like well you could do this you can golden rule your way through a lot of things and that's kind of the takeaway it's like well all right i mean i think one of the most useful things today for a very niche audience is that terrible index because (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean maybe well, no, I mean, if I if I had to, like, pick out the greatest hits part of this book, I do think chapter one is useful in the absence of any other general gaming advice. The sidebars, <laughs> I mean, crossover rules, well, the crossover rules are hardly applicable anymore, but the sidebar on seeming versus mean is useful. I think the advice on mortals is incredibly useful. And chimera creation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that part, you know, that part. That section's the best part, most useful today. And like I said, the template for Rural Chronicles is something, yeah. if you were like, I want to run Changeling in a setting that's not covered in the core book, but I don't know like which aspects I should focus on nailing down, I think that template was excellent for that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's stuff to like, there's stuff to not use, yeah. there's stuff that's reprinted. <laughs> there's there's a lot of Changeling books I would recommend buying before buying this one, I guess. It's really sure. Mid-tier, I would put it. It's not a don't buy. It's a if you want it. Hey, have we done any don't buys yet? Book of Storyteller Secrets. Uh... <laughs> I wish you have this book. Yeah. I personally wouldn't buy Kids Book Trolls. I mean, I did. but Yeah. There's a couple others. Anyway, that's the Storyteller's Guide, and it's the only one we ever got. So, so yeah. Uh... Outro.
outro. You can find us, our website, changelingthepodcast.com. You can join our Discord, discord.me slash ctp, which has been given out on some other Discords. And I've seen <gasps> you can go to our Facebook page, uh, Changeling the Podcast. You can send us a toot, changelingpod at dice.camp. You can email us, changeling... Wait, what is their email address again? <laughs> Podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. Yes. And that's and YouTube at Changeling the Podcast. Yes, YouTube Changeling the Podcast. So once again, I'm Josh. I have been informed that I must continue to present myself as Puka. And just remember, Quicksilver handled for too long becomes tarnished, dull, and ultimately kills like a bullet through the brain. And if you haven't heard of this newfangled thing called email, just buckle up. Most storyteller-oriented books are geared towards keeping the storyteller, or DM, or whatever other term of art you prefer, in the game running seat. This makes sense. The publisher's goal is to sell books, and the more time you get people to spend thinking about how to run games, the more they'll buy. But we think another important piece of advice is to leave the table once in a while. Breathe for a minute. Put on a hat. Get your keys and your phone and go outside. Consider the landscape. Go downtown, knock over a fruit stand or your local friendly mail person, and tell people it's performance art. Time away from the table is as valuable as time spent at it, and while we can't condone any misdemeanors you may get up to, here at Changeling the Podcast we support all the merrier forms of chaos. In turn, we are supported by our patrons who include Derek, Dorkadas, Oreo, Roz Caboos, Sandshigger, Sija, Terry Robinson, and Tricerabeth. If you'd like to join their hallowed ranks and get a shout-out at the end of each episode, visit www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast to sign up. You can also show your generosity by leaving us a review on the podcast listening platform of your greatest convenience, or by telling your friends and acquaintances about us. Thanks as always for your attention, and until next time, keep on dreaming. Here come the outtakes. If you're listening to this episode, Mom, which I don't think you will because you like listening to other ones, but hi, Mom. <laughs> she, she was just listening to like our uh, film inspirations episode was giving like constant feedback in chat with me like i'm like well you, you can i think this movie is actually like this. it's like out of context i'm like now i know how <laughs> i can almost guarantee that my mother is not listening to this but mom if you are i dare you to let me know yeah so yeah there's a lot of strange including the anal she at one point or anality or anal oh, anyway they left out a b of banality at one point though, so oh no chuckling for a bit <laughs> Well, the she are just, they're into what they're into. Yep. I'm not here to yuck anybody's young. No. Oh, here, here's, a, here's a challenge for Terry, if he hasn't covered it in Mage the Podcast, because it mentions it here. Like, why are mortals important in your mage game? Like, individual mortals, not humanity. <laughs> I feel like we should have a segment that occasionally pops up that's like, <sighs> challenge for Terry. Yep. Just, you know. <laughs>